Today I welcome Dr. Rodney Glasgow, Head of School at Sandy Springs Friends School in America. In this episode, I'll discuss Quaker education values, fostering student leadership, diversity, equality and inclusion, plus social emotional development in boarding schools. You're obviously the head of school at Sandy Springs Friends, and it's a Quaker school. How does Quakerism inform the education that you offer? It really is. We were founded as a Quaker school in 1961, so in Maryland, so amidst the civil rights movement in a historically Quaker neighborhood. This neighborhood's been Quaker for over 100 years um, and has one of the oldest Quaker meeting houses in it that the school is attached to. So when the folks founded this school, they were Quakers who founded it. But the way it infused into the education was in basing it in a progressive education. And by progressive, we mean both experiential as well as grounded in social justice and think about the spirit of the 60s and both of those ideals. And also being really inquiry-based, that we're teaching our kids how to ask the right questions, how to search for answers, but that the search is more important than the outcome. The other thing that really drew me to the school was voice and leadership and the way our students, from our youngest students all the way up, are taught how to use their voice and how to listen to the voices of others. And this Quaker idea that infuses the education and the social life of the school, which is the thoughts we have, the ideas we want to share, we give to the community that the community can wrap around and add their thoughts, and it might amplify the education. So it's a very rigorous curriculum, but it's not a competitive curriculum. And so those are the ways I see Quakerism living out and how we do things here. Are you yourself educated in the Quaker way? I was not. I'm a graduate of Gilman School. It's an all-boys school founded 1897 in Maryland that was a little more traditional in its curriculum. And so I came upon Quakerism as a consultant to schools. I consulted with this school before I came the head, but this is my first like deepest dive into Quakerism. But as I said, for me as a human, the basic tenets of Quaker as a religion really speak to me and how I move spiritually through the world as well. So I wouldn't identify as a Quaker, but certainly Quakerism speaks to me. What values does Quakerism help to foster in young people and obviously the students that you have at Sandy Spring? It fosters both a selflessness and a healthy self-centeredness. When I say a selflessness, it really is that idea of there are things I could do by myself, but why? (laughs) And that they'd be better done in community. That's a very Quaker ideal. And then a self-centeredness in that. And the only thing I really can control is myself my own personal growth, my own personal connection. And if I go within myself and do my very best to be the best I can be, that impacts positively the community and the folks around me. And so in that way, I call it a healthy self-centeredness in that the goal of developing yourself is so that the community can watch you live out the tenets of Quakerism in your own way and be inspired to do that for themselves. And what for you is the most important lesson Quakerism teaches? Mm, It teaches so many. I like to live in the dichotomies, right? It teaches a humility that is really refreshing and a deep responsibility and accountability that is really powerful. So I don't 
pretend to be any bigger than I am. And I know how big I am in every situation I'm in. I hold myself accountable to being my best self with the recognition that I'm not the only self in the space. And I don't know if we look at the state of education, we look at children and child development right now, we look at just what's going on for young people in the world. I don't know that there are enough educational spaces that are teaching those two things simultaneously. Leadership has been an important skill that we always try and steward and embrace with all of our students. And, you know, not all students and people in life take to leadership. What opportunities do students have to develop leadership skills at Sandy Spring Friends School? Sure. So we have some structures of leadership. We have student government that starts, we are three years old to 12th grade. So we've got three divisions, a lower school, an upper school, and a middle school. Our lower school student government is called SPARK, and they are self-determined fifth grade leaders who really work with our division heads to raise the concerns of students. Our middle school version is called FLAME, and our upper school version is called TORCH. And those three bodies have direct connections to me, to other school leaders, and give input on a lot of things. And I'll remember just as an example, last year we were changing the schedule. As we were coming back from the pandemic and getting back into fuller operation, we're like, now's the time to dream up a new schedule. And we worked really closely with Torch to get input on the schedule, to get feedback on the schedule, to make sure the final schedule reflected as best we could what the school needed, what the students needed. And there was this powerful moment. And obviously, right, there's tensions in all those kinds of conversations. So there were things that we were saying, okay, the leaders are seeing we need this as adults. The student leaders were seeing this, how we're going to meet in the middle. That's what Quaker process is really good at. And we came from a very tense conversation and we just kept coming closer and closer to the middle. And then a powerful thing happened that was decidedly quicker, which was, okay, we've got a final schedule, and now we're going to present it to the community. And the head of the high school said, okay, I'll present it at assembly um, next week. And the leader of student government said, we worked on this with you. Let us present it. And then if people have questions, they can come to you. That's how much they owned the schedule, right? And owned that process that we may not have been in agreement when we started this. But now we're so invested in it, we will stand up and defend the schedule. And that also shines true for collaboration and partnerships. Everybody needs to get along in all walks. And we're going to talk about sort of diversity, equity and inclusion um, shortly. What benefits does fostering leadership skills have as students move through your school and beyond into the workplace? To begin with the end in mind, when our students leave here, one of the things they note about their college experience is that they watch other college students who didn't come from Sandy Spring Friends try to figure out how to advocate for themselves, how to speak with their professors, how to get their needs known, how to expand their ideas and be in conversation after class. And our students do that quite naturally. In fact, they don't know how not to do that. So that's one of the biggest, most powerful outcomes is they have this confidence and this ability and this practice in speaking with people across the board, up and down, and also advocating for themselves in other settings. The other piece is it compels them to listen in a different way. So our students are incredibly thoughtful. And part of Quakerism is 
this deep silence and reflective listening and processing. And when they do that, oh my goodness, their ability to sit in a room and to soak up everything that's happening, process it, and then put the perfect question out there for the group to wrestle with. I mean, that's a lifelong skill and a skill that we're taking into the workplace more and more. And as we think about what schools and organizations are valuing out in the marketplace now, it's not people who are brimming with all kinds of information, right, that they could do well on a trivia. And our kids have that. But people who know how to sit with and process information, ask the questions that need to be asked, the questions that aren't being asked, to move with a multiple perspectives approach that will get us into a better place collaboratively. And that's really at the heart of how we teach our kids. What are the benefits to those who are being led by their peers? Our students love peer leadership and really respect it. But I think it starts with, so how did that person get to lead this conversation? Who said they could be the leader? And in so many schools, right, leaders are elected by the student body through some vote or selected by adults through some conversations and processes. But here we do a Quaker-based process of not an election, because Quakers don't believe in voting in that way, but of discussion-based and appreciation-based process of who should be our student leaders. And so they literally sit in a room the whole ninth grade and the whole 10th grade, the whole 11th grade, and they talk about, so who among us has great leadership skills that we want to highlight? And they call those names forward and people speak on their behalf. And you're actually not allowed to discount anyone. You can only speak positively. And then the person whose name keeps rising most positively becomes the student leader. And so then when that person goes to lead, they've had the affirmation of their peers and you want to be led by that person and you know why you want to be led by that person. So it's it's a little bit different how we do it here in the Quaker world, but really powerful. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. I'm still learning at the age of 50, again, how to lead and manage. I don't always get it right. I had some advice a while back, um, and it was called the management potato. And the concept was this, is that if someone comes and gives you a potato, you're either going to look at it and go, oh, look at all the black bits, or it's a bit this, it's not perfect, right? Some people always are looking for imperfections because it's not right, rather than going, that's a brilliant potato. How did you grow it? I learned so much about myself because I'm very much a perfectionist. You know, I drive perfection. I drive this. And sometimes I suddenly forgot that, Simon, you've actually got to step back and you've got to allow all the great things, the positive things to come forward and then go, how do you think we can make it better? And they themselves may go away and go, well, actually, maybe it's not as perfect. Maybe next time we'll do this. So I completely get that whole piece about collaboration I think, and being positive. And it's great that you bring that into schools because it's too easy to be negative. I think it's a natural human trait, isn't it? You know, it is the optimism versus the pessimist. And your potato story is reminding me of the the classic game of hot potato where you just keep passing it around, right? And that style of leadership also doesn't work. You've got to deal with the potato that's in your hand, whatever temperature, whatever bumps or discolorations, like what are we going to do with this potato? And that's what the leader has to hold the potato, right? And that's what we try to teach our kids. And it's a Quaker tenet around responsibility. This is the potato you were given. What are you going to do with that? 
Diversity, equity, inclusion has been brought into sharp focus in recent years. And across America, we're seeing real different kind of groups. It's divisive. It just feels like you're in polar parts. First of all, equality or equity and why? I love that you're asking that question. I love that we're in the week that began with Martin Luther King's birthday as you asked that question, right? Because that was really what was sitting at the center of the American civil rights movement was, okay, we have this system that we're calling separate but equal, and it's not equal. And when people retell the story of the civil rights movement, they focus on the separate part. The goal was integration. The goal was integration for the outcome of equality. What it actually is at the core of what's really, truly wrong is that we're separate because we have this sense that one group is better than the other, and then we're giving one group better things than the other group. We need to focus on the equality piece, and we can't do equality separate. So I do believe in equality, but equality to me is the baseline, and actually doesn't always work, and especially in education, equality is a more dangerous assumption or goal than equity. Because back when, in the 90s, when I was being educated, and certainly before then, right, we assumed that if we gave every kid the same thing, put the same books in their backpack, gave them the same teachers and the same buildings, and all the buildings had the same funding, that we'd see the same outcomes. And what we ignored was the fact that that only works if every person is the same. But what I need sitting in my math classroom and what the kid next to me needs is also dictated by our life circumstances, by just who we are as people. What I needed as a Black child versus what the white kids who went to school with me needed, right? Very different. And once schools figured that out, that, hey, there may be something that Rodney needs that Jim doesn't need. And there are things that Jim needs that Rodney doesn't need. And if we give them both what they need versus assuming they need the same thing, then they actually might have the best chance at getting the same outcomes. I think equity is the more powerful and the harder of the two, because it also implies that it's not going to be equal. I've got to be okay with, you gave that to Jim because Jim needs it, and you didn't give it to me because I didn't need it, right? And that's a hard thing for human beings to swallow in our own self-centeredness, that there isn't anything you should give to Jim that also shouldn't be available to me. But equity says, mm, no, maybe there is, and you need to get okay with that. It's still tough conversations, but it's, to me, a lot of schools and independent schools put in place some committees to sort of fix some of these very notable occurrences that have happened across America. That's just dealing with it at the end of it, almost like the event has happened. Now let's deal with it. Not actually, how do we embed it? And, you know, what myths about independent schools in regard to DEI need to be tackled? You know, one of the... I don't know that it's a myth per se, but just sort of the narrative of independent schools where so many of them were founded in moments where they were trying to support white flight or trying to replicate an elitism, whether that was racial or economic, right? Independent schools sort of came up to educate a small group of people to become the small group of people who would be leaders in this country in a way that the other people were not. And we need to just acknowledge that that is not a myth. Actually, we need to acknowledge that that's how independent schools were born and raised. And so what do we do now that we're shifting who we want to give access to and how? And that's what independent schools have done well at integrating, done well at models of financial aid and economic access to the schools, 
so that there's a much greater diversity of students in the schools than there were when most of these schools were founded, including this one founded 1961 in Maryland. And maybe the myth that goes alongside that is that somehow in that diversification, we lost a quality of student, right? That we diversified, but somehow we watered down the elitism of the students that we're bringing in. And that actually isn't true. Our students remain competitive and compelling, and the diversity of them is even more compelling. And so that's one of the myths I hear all the time is, well, we want to have students of color, right? We don't want to lessen the quality of our students. We want to have students on financial aid, but we want to bring in the right students, but the right fit, whatever that is. We want more teachers of color, but, you know, they've got to be qualified. And all of that is a dog whistle to this myth that somehow diversification and high quality are intention when actually they're in deep collaboration. It's really difficult to balance that. Everyone's trying to be more diverse and equitable and, you know, and inclusive. It's almost to a point of we're in danger of too much positive discrimination because we overthink it. That's some of the bias that maybe it's the innate bias that we have. And I'm very mindful of my upbringing, right? And I'm mindful of what I have to do with my kids. I'm not going to get it right, but I'm compassionate and get... There is history that I don't agree with, but history has happened. We can't let it happen moving forward. How do we deal with that side of things where we feel that, I suppose, me is that positive discrimination where I'm almost overthinking it? It's hard. You know, when I do anti-bias training, I start with the premise that you will never be unbiased. It's just not a thing. You can be anti-biased, you can be aware of your biases, and you should be, and you can work against them. You can make your unconscious bias conscious, but your brain is reliant upon bias as a way to process information quickly and make decisions. And you've just got to help your brain to know, hey, wait a minute, this bias is about to get us wrong rather than right. So in that way, I would say, Simon, you kind of do want to obsess over it a little bit (laughs) so that you don't fall into a false sense of complacency. But then you also want to always check, is this what's at play here, really? Like, I'm a person who the way my identity molecule is set up, you know, I think about race all the time. I believe it's highly impactful to how I experience the world. And yet there have to be moments where I pull back and say, Rodney, now you know you look through a racial lens. Is this actually racial or is this (laughs) your lens, right, helping you to see something that's not there? My classic story around that is ordering something from Amazon and trying to get a refund and being in a battle with them about whether I should or shouldn't get it. And a friend saying when they called, you seem really upset. I said, if I were white, they would give me this refund. (laughs) And then finally the friend said, how do they know you're not white? And I was like, actually, I don't know. that. I've just been emailing them. They don't know who I am, right? But in my mind, I was so convinced it was racial when it wasn't. And so that's where you also have to recalibrate yourself. It's complex. And I think it's all about intention. And I think intention is sometimes misread between people because it's easy to. And I think if you have an honest, honest intention with this, we can always learn, right? And we may get it wrong, but it's the intention of going, did I set out to upset you based on on race or equity or, or anything else that we need to talk about? Or actually, was I being well-meaning and had good intent? I need to be educated, right? I just need to be slapped on the face and gone, Simon, you, you can't say that. Or put yourselves in my shoes. If you do see that, let me give you... And then I learn, right? That to me is a really positive way 
so we can sort of grow as a community, but it's intent. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, I love that, right? And that's the classic tension between intent and impact. Even if my intentions were good, if my impact is negative or harmful, I need to deal with my impact and not allow my intent to dismiss what has actually happened. And so I I think people need to be better about even the assumption. I try to assume good intent, right? So that we don't even need to debate what you were intending. We just need to focus on, but here's the outcome of what has happened. And I think actually it paralyzes a lot of conversations around DEI is that people feel like they're being told if they come from places of privilege, economic privilege, racial privilege, gender privilege, that somehow they're bad people or that they intend to be privileged and they don't intend to be allies. I don't come from that place. But if you feel like that's what people are saying, then your wall goes up, right? Because I'm not a bad person and I'm not going to engage in this conversation to feel badly for something I may not even be able to control that I was given. At the same time, because you were given it, you have a responsibility to manage the impact that you have and the impact you could have on the world in a positive way. So I think that has been really challenging for people to navigate. And the other piece of that is a zero sum game. This idea that somehow if I give Simon more, there's less for me. But we live in this abundant world where Simon can have exactly what he needs and maybe more than what he needs. And I could also, (laughs) right? But we live in this psychology where one group having it means another group will never have it or shouldn't have it. Or if I give it to them, then somehow I'm losing, right? And that is really hard for people to break through. That goes back to your equality and equity conversation. Yeah, what am I picking your brains on something? This is all very, it's very current in my life. It's to do with my oldest son. He's 18, just turning 18. Um, he wants to be an actor. This is fine. He is white. He's very privileged. In other words, he has, he's not entitled. He's very privileged in what he has. And, you know, he's been told that his chances of getting through the next part of education have been cut because of equity or, you know, diversity quotas. I get it. But also I'm going, should it be on talent? Life's not about a quota, is it? No, it, it should definitely not be. And I'm thinking, I don't know about a quota model because we saw even with affirmative action in this country, right, that that's not necessarily the best way forward. But if we're looking at your identity as something that has value in the marketplace, that gives perspective and that we want to have multiple perspectives, And we need to account for that when we're thinking, who's best to get this role? Who's best to be the main actor in this scene? And there may be moments where your kid, based on how they are showing up and their life experiences, is the one. And there may be moments where another kid is the one. But if we can defend why we're making that decision, and it's not, well, because we don't have enough of this, that is actually, to your point earlier, right, that's such a deficit model of looking at it. It is, should be about, well, because this kid is bringing this other piece to us that's going to enhance this scene. And this other scene you're in, you've got this piece that's going to enhance that. We don't have enough of those conversations. And so we lead people to believe we're making arbitrary decisions based on these rudimentary identities. And even if I was a person, right, if I was an actor of color that got a scene over your son as a white actor, And someone said, well, we gave you that scene because we needed more diversity in the scene. I don't even feel good. I don't even want that scene. Right. So no one wins in that scenario. And no one does win. I think we can talk about this a lot. And and it's brilliant. I love it. 
you're very articulate and passionate about this and, and rightly so. And we need to. And obviously what you're doing in terms of leading your school is great to have you at the helm doing it. I want to talk about boarding schools because they're often criticized for traditionally encouraging students to separate themselves from their emotions. How is Sandy Springfield School challenging this perception and redefining boarding as a positive experience for social emotional development? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. It's so timely with what this generation of students is dealing with. Both even pre-pandemic, their environment just lent itself to so many more mental, emotional challenges. And then the pandemic exacerbated all of that. And we're seeing that in schools. So what can boarding schools do, especially because boarding schools are at that intersection of school and home, right? So boarding schools have to both educate and also be the home base and the soft landing for those students because they live there. What we do is one of the most powerful things is we have a counselor who lives on campus and is a part of our boarding program. She's got eyes and ears out and students have access to her. And it kind of normalizes the idea of seeing a counselor, right? They're just someone in the community and you can talk to them about anything. So that, to me, that's one of those low-hanging fruits that you could say every boarding school should have a counselor that is resident in the community that kids identify with, that knows the kids well, and that's just a part of the conversation. You know, the other thing is, do we teach kids, which we do, the signs for how to care for each other? How do I know when my friend is having a bad day versus when my friend is in crisis? What are some of the signs I might look for? And then what can I do as a student and as a friend? And when do I get to that point where, well, now we need to let somebody know so we can help you, right? We teach that to our students because if they were a family and we all got to look after each other. We often have conversations about what's happening in the world and then what's happening to us. If you have a boarding school where you can talk about any and everything, then you have a more healthy boarding school where kids don't start to hide stuff or get those signals that you sometimes get. I know the family you grew up in, but the one I grew up in, you got little subtle hints about but we'll talk about that, but we're not talking about that, <laughs> right? And then you don't talk about it, but you need to talk about it and you stuff it down. Oh, I never talked about feelings. I mean, it wasn't a thing. And, you know, we don't talk about it. We didn't talk about mental health. We didn't talk about anything. It was British stiff upper lip. It was just kind of, come on, son, you know, pull yourself together. You can do this. And I'm like going, I'm kind of breaking inside, but we're having these great conversations. Are we becoming softer as adults? <laughs> Well, you've hit on an important component of it is as much as you honor that they may be fragile, you also need to teach resilience, right? And how do you, okay, you're having a bad day, but how do you not spiral all the way down? All right, you're going through some emotional challenges and it may even be part of your cognitive makeup. How can you learn how to deal with that and navigate through that, right? And when we don't teach resilience, we actually send forth a group of folks who can't cope with, to go back to our earlier conversation, the potato they've been given. And they've got to figure out what recipe are they making of that potato and make the very best you can because this is the food you have in hand now. And so resilience is one of those deep Quaker tenets that we also teach in our boarding program is how do we bounce back from bad days, bounce back from mistakes, and how do we also feel empowered around the challenges that we may be having right now? A generalization, but you know, this snowflake generation, the millennials, they've always been kind of tarred with this sense that they haven't really got much resilience, that they give up pretty easily. You know, we think about the jobs, they're jumping from one to another. 
Is this just something that us adults are just putting out there in pictures because we're just not taking the time to understand it? Or is it really a real phenomenon that just got to learn to live with this generation? Yes to both. Here's where my heart goes out to this generation in that the things we may have knew were possible but never thought would happen and didn't happen actually happened to them. So when we were growing up, right, you would go to school and you might practice a lockdown drill or practice an evacuation in the unlikely, highly unlikely event someone storms into your classroom, right? When we practiced it, it was all tongue in cheek because it didn't happen to us, but it happens to them and actually happens to them too often. And they live in a world where, you know, when we're doing a lockdown drill, we actually have to remind our kids at the outset, this is a drill. It's not actually happening because immediately their world is full of stuff that they have seen happen. And we didn't have the technology to see it either, right? There were things happening in the world that we were shielded from that they're not shielded from. So in some ways, their fragility is quite warranted in that they live in a much realer world and a much more dangerous world than we ever did. And a much more isolated world. If we watch even how they communicate, you and I, if we grew up together, then we literally grew up together. You maybe live next door, you went to my school, they're talking with kids they never would even have met and they think they have friends. And, and that's a whole different phenomenon. So I think we have yet to fully understand what it means to grow up in the world they're growing up in. And therefore we sometimes discount the behaviors that come out of that. If we sat back and thought, what would I be like if I grew up in the world Whereas a kindergartner, it was quite possible to me that school couldn't be safe. How would that change who I was today? I often say we've got to position is that would we be any different if we were their age today? We always look at it from the lens of, but when I was your age, which is a long, long time ago, right, <laughs> before technology was even a place, you know, as you say, my friends are who I could walk to or get on my bike to. And I just saw regularly, you know, they are completely different. It's a classic apathetic adult view, which is like, you know, oh, it wasn't like that in my days. Of course it isn't. But then look at your father. I think we've got to stop giving them a hard time. This generation, I feel, is amazing in terms of how they really want to. They feel they can change the world. And I think they're changing the world. We've got to give them the confidence and the structure and the stewardship and the experience to allow them to flourish and to thrive. And it sounds like what you're doing with Quakerism at Sandy Spring is just great. And I'm really delighted that you've been able to share your passion and your energy for what you believe in. I always ask my guests this season, if you were to look into a crystal ball, what would the future of education look like, say, in 2050? Thankful for that question now, because if you'd asked me three or four years ago, I might have said, we probably won't have brick and mortar schools anymore. We would be educating virtually and it would open up a whole different field of what education could be like and who could be in your classroom and what teaching looks like. I think the pandemic and our experience of trying to do that taught us some important things around learning is very much so an in-person, collaborative, social, hand-to-hand, -hand, heart heart-to-heart, brick and mortar endeavor. And so I do not predict that in 2050, we won't have physical schools on 140 acres of bucolic campus like Sandy Spring Friends School. We will still feel the need to send our children to school and actually even more 
we will change what we're asking schools to do for our kids. The other learning that has happened that shifts my answer today is the role not just academically that schools play, but socially and emotionally and in terms of positive identity development and child development. And our schools, I'm going to hope by 2050, will be centering that as the gateway to learn the math facts and the history eras, right, is that we are building our schools around are we socially, emotionally, and cognitively places of belonging and well-being for our students? And once we have that grounded, what could they learn from each other and from us today? That's really what I'm hoping to see in 2050. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.